Welcome to Accounting High. The guy, the transformation. You guys are the guided transformation. The principal and the superintendent are guiding the transformation <laughs> guided of the professions <laughs> of the profession, right? Yeah. The guided transformers. That's like Chat GPT. The the <laughs> G. Um, it's not a guided transformer, but it's a generated. Pre- yeah, gener- generative, gener- predictive text. Is that right? To have that? Yeah. Say GPT. So, so you guys would be the guided professional transformers. There we go. Profession GP- transformers. Profession the guided transformers. profession Bang. transformers. Ooh, I Dunk. love it. That's yeah. That's a ooh. Sometimes sometimes the wordplay just gets gets away from me. please welcome to accounting high it's freshman year at a brand new school here we have no rules in place as we're on a mission to set our own traditions so hang tight and learn with us as we grow at accounting high you can expect to gain knowledge in a completely different way than what you may be used to with some fun and oftentimes colorful conversations involving some of the best teachers in the accounting industry Whether you loved high school or you hated it, here's your chance to be a part of an unforgettable experience redone. While you're here, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening to us right now so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And feel free to leave us a five-star review letting us know how the school year is treating you. In addition, share this episode on social media tagging us at Accounting High. So sit back, relax. And open your mind because class is in session. I repeat, may I have your attention, please? This is another public service announcement brought to you in part by Accounting High. The views and events expressed here are of the next generation of accounting and tech professionals leading this space. The events and suggestions are not to be taken lightly. Children should not partake in the listening of this podcast. Anything else? Yeah. So without further ado, introducing the star of our show. Scotty and We're going to have a problem Press. here. Epic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might need to trim it down a little bit, but I'm starting to have these, you know, like a canned intro this way. It preps everybody, right? It's sort of like... um I'm sure you guys have an intro for the show too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you guys do. play it live when you have guests? We do because we we actually do the show live. It's actually broadcast live, okay, as part of a the, the radio show through Voice America. And the, our opening is a is a, from the good, the bad, and the ugly. The theme from the good, the bad, and the ugly. So that's what I was going to ask you too, because I, I never I never asked Ron this, and I I love the intro. It's, it kind of sounds like Reagan, like a chrysalis. We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. And it is Reagan. It's Ronald okay. Reagan. And it's from, it's from his uh, speech before Moscow University. This is, it was Gorbachev's alma mater that he's giving this speech. And it's, it, it, a, if you actually look it up on YouTube, there's a big bust of Lenin in the background. It's, it's, it's absolutely wild. I got to check that out. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I love it. I love how you guys, and that was sort of inspiration for me, like mashing up all these different like it, songs and, um, well, the, the music's original, but like a bunch of different Eminem tracks mm-hmm. that I did for the intro. And then we have the front office lady too, because the front office. So <laughs> try to work all that in. But thanks for joining me today. Oh, my honor and pleasure. Ed Kless, entrepreneurs continue to work the work of creation. That that one line right there on your website, 
entrepreneurs continuing the work of creation. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to touch on that. Um, but let me introduce you as our guest today. You're the Senior Director of Partner Development and Strategy for Sage for almost 20 years, going on 20 years at least the, in Ju- July. You're a Senior Fellow at Verisage Institute, the Think Tank, to eliminate the billable hour at professional firms. I know we, we've had your your co co-host on with us, Ron, and he has nominated you to soon be the superintendent of Accounting <laughs> High. This is the next generation of accounting professionals. Today, I want to kind of center the conversation around how do we inspire this new generation of accountants? We don't have to talk about CPA. We definitely don't have to talk about the 150-hour thing, but just accountants in general. Um, I think that's a that's sort of our our whole theme here at Accounting High is speaking to the next generation and trying to bridge that generational gap that we have. So I just want to kind of center it around there. But first, just thank you for joining me. Can you explain to me what a meta consultant is? <laughs> a meta consultant is some, a term that I made up. Uh, I'm, I'm sure someone else has, has come up with it as well, but it was it, one day I was just thinking about it at, because the work that I often do at Sage is working with our partner organizations. And when I say partner organizations, I mean those that either uh, sell our software directly or those that recommend it. So people are in our Sage Accountants Network or the SIAP, which is the Sage Intact Accountants Program, or who recommend our software. So I am a consultant to people who do consulting. <laughs> that's so, getting meta so yeah. therefore th- therefore uh, i d- decided i'm a meta consultant because i consult to consultants i love it yeah i, I love using I, I love anything that's meta I, I think we get kind of meta on this podcast with the whole theme of high school and and, and all of my talks but this is you know when we talk about things i just love that i love when tv shows do that and so that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool yeah the consultant for consultants cool and <laughs> A business iconoclast. Give me, yes. give me a little rundown of that too. Again, uh, I'm a, I'm a word guy. I love words, uh, and this goes back to my dad, who is also a word guy. Um, may he rest in peace. And uh, he, well, I'll, I'll get to the, I'll get to the, to the, the, the idea of a business iconoclast. But let me tell you the story, the background sure, story, of my sure. dad, because I think it's yeah, a good yeah. one. So, um, did you ever, did you see the movie uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Yes. Okay. So there's like a couple of running gags in that movie. One of them is the Windex, right? He sprays Windex on stuff because the mm-hmm. neck clears it up. The, the other one is like, you get like, give me a word, then I'll tell you how the origin is Greek, you know, and then they <laughs> throw all these kinds of crazy words at him. And he comes up with this convoluted story, how orange is actually, you know, Greek. But um, the it was sort of like that in my household, but with Latin. My dad was a part-time Latin teacher. It, it says, Romans go home. No, it doesn't. What's Latin for Roman? Come on, come on. Romanus? Goes light. Annus? Vocative plural of Annus is? Annie? Romani. So we would have conversations about words. Now, it was kind of weird, but I did pretty well on my SATs because of it. So, because we, we, but, but so for example, I'll always remember the, the time we talked about the word mortgage which is a concatenation of two Latin words, mort, which everybody knows means death, right? So uh, you have a mortuary, right? I guess now I do, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. mortuary, right? There's a lot lot of words that are uh, surrounded with that moratorium. But gage is another Latin word, and it it, it means pledge. So a mortgage is a death pledge. 
Ah. And it, it makes like total sense now, right? It it's does, like, yeah. You're basically <laughs> you're committed to death. To, well, yeah. it, the, the sense that it, it was created, the word mortgage was created in the sense is that you're you're committed until you completely pay it off, until the death of the the, the pledge. Okay, right. So that's that that's that that's the sense behind it. Anyway. So that those kinds of things or conversations happened in my house, and I've got one for client and all this other stuff. Maybe we'll get into that. But because of that, I, I've been, always been this lover of words, uh, and uh, especially longer words like iconoclast. And when I, ca- I when I came across that word, it means the breaker of idols, right? So an iconoclast is somebody who breaks down this this the statues, the icons in a church usually. Uh, to to say you know this we, we, this is no longer something that we need to be doing in this religion right so uh, so the corporate iconoclast was was this how, what what are the things that I can break down inside of businesses to change the nature of business and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those things the timesheet is sure because yeah, that's, that's yeah. related into all of this stuff so that's the corporate iconoclast <laughs> I love that yeah I I, I kind of threw that word to around with Dave Barrett when he was on of Expensify. Mm-hmm. Um, cause he kind of calls himself that. And I never, honestly, I just used the word. I didn't even know what it meant. So now I know, um, yeah. I did not do well on my SATs on the written part. <laughs> I did well on the math part. I think I got a perfect uh-huh. score on the math part, but man, I did so horrible on the written part. <laughs> this is why chat GPT is here to save my life. Like, there you go. There you go. Terrible oh. writer. I can think in numbers and all that, but everything else is, yeah. is a little difficult for me. So I, um, learning how to be, become a better communicator through using chat GPT or jasper because you got to be able to communicate well in mm-hmm. order to use a lot of these ai tools yeah um, the, the the really interesting thing about that i was talking with somebody yesterday about this and in, in that chat gpt is is changing the face of the way we, we even think about problems because the people who are having the most success with chat gpt are the ones who are the best asker of questions like if you ask better questions to ChatBT, you get better answers. But you have to be good at asking better questions, and that's something that Ron and I have talked a lot about. In fact, we did an episode on asking effective questions because it's it's such an important thing for professionals, not just accountants, but professionals of all ilks, to be able to do that is to ask really good and effective questions. And who better to teach than the consultant for consultants right that's right that's right well that and and that's a great example though is is that asking questions is a meta consulting skill it's just a natural a skill of life too like Mm -hmm. to be to be a better listener and to care about the person you're engaging with you've got to ask them good questions and that's something that i didn't really know until i started doing a podcast like Mm -hmm. i until i started doing that i didn't really understand what that meant like asking a good question and caring about the answer and listening for the answer to lead to the next question. Mm-hmm. So being an iconoclast consultant, you're asking questions and destroying the old way as you do it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a predetermined way of doing these kind of things? Like, or do you have something in mind when you're asking, like, tell me how to ask a good question, I guess. Let's start there. How do you ask a good question? So there's a couple of things, there's characteristics of good questions. And and one of the characteristics, believe it or not, is that they're a little bit nebulous. They're a little bit, un, not unclear, but 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 not, um, they, they leave open extra room for the answer. So let me give you an example of two questions side by side and why I think one is the better example. 
So a lot, of, a lot of times in business, you'll hear people say, what decision do you need to make around here? So that's, that's a pretty good question. I, I, in fact, I think that's one of, it's a very good question. What are the deci- what's the decision that you need to make about this? But there's a better question, which is to, to leave it a little bit more nebulous and say, what are, the, what are the crossroads that you find yourself at right now? because that expands from just decisions I need to make to bringing lots of other stuff in. I I like it when we, we, we use terms that we're not necessarily expecting in a business context. Another example of this, it, when we talk with people at the beginning of a, a project or engagement that we're working on, one of the questions that I like to ask of the group as we're starting to form the, the group and the, the, the nexus of, of, of whatever it is we're, we're going to try to get accomplished is I ask everyone, what gifts are you going to bring to this engagement? You don't, you don't hear the business. We don't hear that word gift <laughs> being thrown well, around all in that often Japan, in Japan. I think, I think yeah. you do in, in those. Yeah. Areas, but yeah, you, you, you may, but in American business, you know, that's not something, what gifts are you bringing to this, this engagement? So it forces the, it forces somebody to kind of look at everything in a different context, like a broader okay, context. Yeah. yeah. Do you translate it for them and tell them what you mean by that? Typically, do you have to do that? Usually not. If someone, if someone asks a clarifying question, like, why are you saying gifts? Then I will. But okay. other than that, I'll just leave it open. Do, does it change what they bring? Do they actually, do people actually bring gifts sometimes? <laughs> I, it, it, they might, but th- th- most of the time, it's they, they understand it in the context of what talents do they have to offer. And I think what happens is, is that the talent that the talents that get offered are above and beyond what would have normally happened in a business context, because people start to think, oh, there's other things that I can do here. There might there might be something that's outside my current career that a- a- allows me to. To, that I can bring to this to, to this particular problem we're trying to solve or engagement we're trying to, to talk about. So. And it also forces somebody to go back and think about their strengths altogether anyway and reevaluate who they are as a person. Like, what do I bring to the table? Like, so yeah. I'm sure, you know, there's other philosophical discussions there. So, and this one thing we talked about recently on the show is working with people and finding people to complement your weaknesses and knowing your weaknesses. And something that I've said is actually, you know, a lot of weaknesses can be strengthened in certain ways too. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever touch on that? Do you ever touch on like, what are you not bringing to the table to make sure that people are complementing that? Yeah, I certainly think that we, we need to, to, uh, yeah. And, and I, I don't know if I would say weaknesses per se, I would say, what concerns do you have about your involvement with this engagement? Okay. You know? Okay. But, we're still trying to get at the, the the same thing. And look, yes, I do think that we can all strengthen our weaknesses. However, there's much bigger bang for buck to enhance people's strengths than it is to fix people's weaknesses. Oh, actually, yeah. And I I think I'm with you there 100%. Yeah. Like, I don't think that anybody should be looking to fix their weaknesses. I think in some ways, I mean, like weaknesses could be seen as a strength because... It, it forces you to do something differently or to think differently on it because you're not going to try to fix that weakness. Like for me, language was never a thing for me, like the written word and everything. So I never really tried to fix that. I just leaned into the math, you know, but I never really looked now, at least I'm, I'm learning through a lot of, you know, people like you that 
because this is how you think too, like you don't need to fix your weaknesses if you could really lean into your strengths. Um, yes. And if your, your awareness of your weaknesses then allows you to, to, to uh, either delegate that task or find some, some, someone outside the organization to be able to handle that piece that you know is going to handle it way better than you. Right, right. You know? And that's, that's the importance of other people and needing people around you. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have a co-host and you and Ron complement each other in so many ways, the way you guys, you know, it's co- sort of Ron's MO. This is how he works. Like, oh, the books that he writes, he's got Paul. On his mm-hmm. show, he's got you. Like, he's <laughs> definitely looking to compliment him in a lot of ways. And I'm learning from him tremendously. Every time I have him on the show is, is a whole nother bag of knowledge. How did you meet Ron? This it, it, There is a story behind this. So this is when I first started with Sage, I reported to a guy by the name of Taylor McDonald, who was, was, was at Sage at the time, left, and then actually came back as part of the Sage Intact acquisition. So, uh, but, That's uh, and, and my, my role when I joined Sage was twofold. I was in, in charge of partner recruitment. So recruiting new partners into Sage, especially in the, the mid-market products, and then also working on what we call partner development, which is still in my title today, officially. What the idea was, is that I would get the recruitment, get it spinning, going and then I would devote full time to partner development which I, I I was able to do but Taylor actually gave me a copy of Ron's first book the professional's guide to value pricing and he said you know Ed you're a reader you know you got to give this a read and you know I was uh, I had actually read parts of the book before Taylor gave it to me when I I was in a, a practice that was doing implementations of of uh, accounting software and we had begun to implement some of the stuff. Not, I, I skimmed through Ron's book. I wasn't, but now that Taylor was asked me to look at it in a different light, and how can we bring this to our partner organizations? It just changed the way I thought. So I uh, I hired Ron to do a uh, I, I guess what do we call it? A, a phone call? I guess it was. It was before you know you could do anything where you could show <laughs> what slides. What did we do before this? Yeah, yeah. It was so show slides, but it was a group phone call where Ron did a presentation. <laughs> oh wow! And it was an hour, and it was on. I think it was on the deleterious effects of the billable hour. That's and that that's actually a chapter in in the first book. The deleterious effects of the billable deleterious. hour. Deleterious. Okay. Yeah, and he and he just you know he laid into this, and at the end of this hour long conversation i said so is there any are there any questions and i'm thinking yeah there's gonna be a ton of questions this is great content and there's like silence just dead stunned silence like nothing wow (laughs) and i hung up the phone we we hung up i'm like all right thanks ron appreciate it he calls me back immediately said i'm so sorry that was terrible i insist that i come and do a live engagement for your group yeah this is these ideas were very fresh for him yeah at at that stage i mean he wrote a book on it but Yep, uh, you know, and he and he said, "I don't want you to pay me." I think we paid his travel. I don't even remember, but but he he came and he gave, gave a, a full presentation, and it was at that presentation where we started talking more and became fast friends. We had, one of the books that we bonded over was a was the the a book about questions. It was called "The Answer to How Is Yes" by Peter Block, 
which is one of the the seminal works in my career that that has really changed the way I think about stuff. And we could t- we explore that if you want. But yeah. Peter has a new book out that both Ron and I are like all over right now. It's con- called Confronting People with Their Freedom. I'm only about uh, a third of the way through it, and it's it's already mind blowing. Anyway, so that we bonded over that. To talk about, I think it's so cool that it circled back to that already. Like, okay, so cool. Peter Block was one of the first books that you guys bonded over, and that was yeah. Ron suggested that I ask what book you're reading now because <laughs> that's a it's a big one. It's blowing yeah. y'all's mind. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, it's just it, absolutely incredible. Um, and. and you know, and, and and Peter Block, it's and Ron has been calling it the anti MBA because it <laughs> it really blows out of the water so much of this conventional wisdom that you know we've got to be we've got to be doing something we've got to do these things we've got to get people to change we've got to make them accountable and this is just absolute and utter nonsense we can't That's make bullshit, people accountable. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, uh, I'm fascinated. It, yeah. This is actually all right. Well, we'll, we'll put a pin in this because I want to I want to talk about this too. So, yeah. Uh, so we we bonded over the, th- that book and some others, and you know I I, I think th- we just became friends and and then was what I guess it is now ten years ago almost ten years ago, nine years ago we started doing the show together. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at that. I think it's almost oh qu- not quite nine years yet. It's like yeah, not quite nine yet. Yeah. Eight and eight a, eight still, and change. still a long time. That's longer than most marriages, I think. So. <laughs> he did want me to mention uh, or talk about baseball. So oh. yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know what ghost runners are. So this is this is new to me. So explain okay. that that phrase to me first. Yeah. What what is a ghost runner? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm not a fan of the ghost runners. So let me we'll just start out there. So as starting with with uh, some the games that were played in 2020 during the COVID shortened season. Major League Baseball introduced this concept of ghost runner after a tie game. So after a game was finished, nine innings and it ends in a tie, in the 10th inning, what happens is is the last batter from the previous inning is automatically put on second base to start the 10th inning. So they start with a runner on second. Ah, right. so just to accelerate, just to have somebody in play. The, the, yeah, the idea here is that it, would, would, it will reduce the 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 length of uh, extra inning games because you know you have somebody has to come around all the way to score if you put somebody start them on second base it's more likely that there's going to be a run scored especially since there are no outs um and and then you know they'll they'll be able to end the game quicker than they would if they didn't do that so that's that's the concept of the ghost runner most of us thought it was going to go away after the COVID stuff, but it, 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 it's, it's been officially instituted as of this year and this full season that they're putting the Ghost Runners back in. So Interesting. that's a Ghost Runner. Do the, both the teams par- get Ghost Runners? Yes. Both okay. teams get a Ghost Runner um, and starting in the 10th inning. The, 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 the crazy part is, is there, this, this happened in softball because this has been, ha- you know, minor leagues have used this and high schools and even, even um, softball and baseball teams, uh, the travel teams have been using this for the same reason. They want to keep the game shorter. But there is on record, I think it was a college softball game where, and they use a Ghost Runner starting, I think, in the seventh inning. I think they play six innings in softball, and then the um, the seventh inning they start the ghost runner, where th- this pitcher in softball she had pitched a perfect game, right? Eighteen up, eighteen down in six innings. They start the seventh inning. They put the ghost runner out there. The first first uh, hit- hitter comes up and lays down a bunt, so that the runner then goes to third. Sure. Next one hits a sacrifice fly. Runner scores. So retired 
let's see, 20 consecutive batters, still perfect, and lost one to nothing. Wow. Wow, yeah. Well, the other pitcher must have been good, too, because must they didn't have been give good, up any but roles. They, yeah. But they gave up hits, right? So it wasn't but, a perfect you know. game. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. perfect game and lost. So is it because you're a purist that you want to keep that? What, what do you have against this Ghost Runner concept? Yeah, it's, it's not it's, a concept it's, anymore. But Yeah, it's not a concept. It's, it's out there. It's, I, I would be okay with the Ghost Runner if they played a couple of innings old style first. Like, okay. I think, you know, play the 10th, 11th, and 12th, so three, a, a set of three more innings. And then after that, if nobody scored, then, then maybe we introduce the Ghost Runner. Or like a five-hour rule or something. Once you hit the five-hour mark of a game, then you've got to bring it in. Yeah, well, we can't, and we can't have no ties. Never a tie. Never, 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 never. That's like that's like the first sign of the apocalypse. I think is ties. Well, this is not soccer or or football, (laughs) right? This is not exactly. um, And that's that's something I never got. Like how they could just always end in ties. Like that's a, it's well, yeah. That's that's and we talk about finite finite and infinite games, right? I think right. the whole concept of the infinite game is it's pretty much always a tie. Like you're you're not playing to win anyway; you're just playing to continue playing. Mm-hmm. Um, finite games, you got to have a winner. There's a defined winner and loser. Yep. So. Yep. Yeah. Um, so let me let me kind of bridge this back to this new generation <laughs> concept. So. Super as superintendent, should you accept the position of superintendent at Accounting High? I might need to explain it a little more, but should you accept that position, what gifts can you bring? Oh, you're turning the tables on me. I love it. Well done. Well played. I I think what and and I and I truly do appreciate Ron saying superintendent, but that would imply that I that that I'm his boss. Which tongue in cheek? It's like <laughs> Superintendent Chalmers at uh, yeah Simpsons, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I get it. I understand it. But I, maybe I'd be better off as like the dean of discipline or something like that. Ooh, all right, all right. <laughs> um, or dean of students. I guess they, they don't call it discipline anymore. They call it dean of students. Uh, but but I think what what I can I can bring is similar to Ron is is fresh thinking about about. A lot of these concepts. I mean, I, and when I say fresh, here's the bizarre part. You know, you're talking about the next generation of accountants, which you're, which absolutely you are. Y'all are not of, spring chickens. <laughs> no, I know. And but here's the thing: the stuff that Ron and I talk about is not is not new. It's ancient wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> so we're just applying it. I mean, and I guess as we're getting older, we're both getting a little bit more philosophical, and. We're applying these concepts that we're like, oh yeah, well that crap doesn't work because we made made a lot of mistakes thinking we could make some changes, and thinking that we could we could enforce change from a top down perspective. When the reality is, is all we can do is invite people to the table and say, if you're interested, why don't you come play along and let's see what we have to offer. Yeah. And and if if you want if you want to be part of this, great. But if not, that's okay too. Keep living your life, you know. So. Well, we're we're iconoclasts in this system here. There is no bosses. I'm sitting here as the custodian interviewing you to be the superintendent. <laughs> so obviously there are like no it. bosses in this. I see you guys as so uh, let me pitch this. Like I see you guys as guides. As the like yeah. I told Ron, you know, I've got Rick Rubin as my spiritual guide. Ron is sort of like my business-minded guide, the idea mm-hmm. guy. And we've already been doing book reports here. And I heard you describe your job as you basically do book reports for yeah. <laughs> Sage, right? Yeah. So if there's a way 
that we can continue these conversations using books as anchors and you guys sort of guiding us through some of these books and these bigger ideas and these big concepts you know, you're not firing anybody and you're not, uh, <laughs> you're not disciplining everybody. You might not even but see the whole concept. And this is all just a big metaphor anyway. Like this right, is all just right, a play right. on and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Like is the, the further, the deeper I get into it, the more other metaphors come up <laughs> and all the other tie-ins. So it's just a, now at this point, like I see this as becoming a TV show at some point further down the road. And oh, even you're better. also an actor too. I, I've heard. So. I am. Yes, I I, I I minored in musical theater. Believe it or not. Oh wow, I love that. I love yep. that. That's so cool. Um, that's so. So all all that being said, I think we're just kind of sort of let, laying the foundation of these conversations and just anchoring it with books, ideas, metaphors, jokes, rap. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if he told you the concept of our book that we're working on too from map to rap is going to be ron's going to introduce the forward of the book but uh, the book's going to be called how to rap and that's run an accounting practice right r-a-p and i didn't even know map existed i hadn't even known that that was a concept and that was the whole so (laughs) so ron said that's that this is the new generation and as we talk about the the ways to run an accounting practice today it's going to change the way it was done in the past there's and we're we're just bridging that gap again, and, and that's what Ron would be there for—is from map to rap. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. This was an, wasn't going to be a conversation about the book, but I, I had to drop that in there because I'm excited about it. But yeah, like books in general. Um, I, I guess because you grew up in a house that was fascinated by language and discussing language, were you always a bit of a bookworm in early days? Were you always just grabbing any book you can get your hands on? Um, I wouldn't say any book, and, and 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 Ron is far more prolific a reader than than I am. I mean, I probably read twenty five books a year, whereas he's more like fifty to a hundred. So <laughs> easy, yeah. He plows through them. Yep, yep. So, um, and but I would I, I would I would say was I was curious. I was always a curious kid, mm. and I would read far more eclectically than I think a lot of my. Uh, a lot of my my compatriots, my classmates, like I would I, I would read more fiction. I would read nonfiction. I would read biography. I would read theology. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure you were reading stuff about you know the entertainment in ways too, musical theater and yeah, and all of that. Like that's yep. that's fascinating. Yep. So, how did you get into that? How did you get into musical theater? It, my my family. My dad was also a, a singer. He he did he did uh, he was more of a singer that could act. I'm more of an actor who can sing. If that makes sense. Okay. Sure. And he so he he did a, he did a lot of that when he was younger. Had a terrific voice. And I guess my the 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 church that I went to when I was in fifth or sixth grade did a production of The Sound of Music. And mm. uh, I, I I I played uh, Kurt in The Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. And my dad was Captain Von Trapp, which is pretty. Cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Um, what's what's interesting is is that the tables have turned, and thirty years hence, uh, I just I just played. If this is during the COVID, so it was July of twenty twenty, I believe. Uh, I, I I did. I was Captain Von Trapp. My daughter played Brigida. So. Oh really? Yeah. That's so dope. That's so cool. Yeah. Keep that tradition. My daughter's been watching Sound of Music a lot. That's always on on the TV. Yeah, it's She's a great it's a, it's a great or... movie. <laughs> what? So so. Looking at it like this, Hamilton changed musical theater 
Absolutely. I, I think I, I think that yes. was one of those defining next generation yep. type moves, mm-hmm. bridging and bringing hip hop into it, a, into musical theater, and it's Hamilton's brilliant. That's that's what got me reignited and fascinated with musical theater, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. There are there are definitely seminal works like that in, in the theater. Oklahoma probably was was one okay. of the first that really changed things. West Side Story, another one yep. where Leonard Bernstein, Les Mis, another one which I think was was a changing of the guard. I think even Tommy the musical was because it introduced I think the the more more rock the who, elements right? yeah the who, yeah. who's Tommy um, introduced more rock elements maybe Jesus Christ Superstar I'll probably throw in there as well but yeah I, you know and, and it's funny you, you know you, you mentioned yeah the, the the rap aspect of of Hamilton and it being new except there was there was there a show called The Music Man with a guy by the name of Robert Preston, and this was in the late 50s, early 60s, and he he uh, he rapped, I would say, the song called You Got Trouble. Oh. You got trouble, my friends. Trouble, I say, right here. Trouble in River City. Why, I certainly am a billiard player. Mighty proud to say it. I'm always mighty proud to say it. I consider the hours I spent with a cue in my hand are golden. Helps cultivate horse sense and a cool head and a keen eye. You ever try and leave yourself an ironclad weed with a three-railed billiard shot? Well, just as I say it take judgment, brains, and maturity to score in a Bach line game, I say that any boob can take and shove a ball in a pocket. And I call that sloth the perfect step on the road to the depths of degradation. First, medicinal wine from a teaspoon, then beer from a bottle. And the next thing you know, your son is playing for money in a pinchback suit. And listen to some big out-of-town Jasper hearing him tell of horse race gambling. Not a wholesome trot race no but a race where they sit down right on the horse like to see some stuck-up jockey boy sitting on damn patch make your blood boil well i should say now friend let me tell you what i mean you got one two three four five six pockets in the table pockets that mark the difference between a gentleman and a bum with a capital b and that rhymes with p and that stands for pool and i can do the rest but i won't <laughs> you were in i didn't even know the pocket part was coming and i was i was gonna say you were in the pocket like that's that I can I can hear a beat in my head and I can hear the the cadence and and it was that, you just blew my mind there I didn't see that coming I, I, I'm 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 even more than excited I don't I'm just kind of speechless right now that was dope oh that and that was that was right off of like in the fifties mm-hmm. yep. yeah okay yep. now okay. the rest of the so rest of the rest of the musical is very much traditional fifty style music um you know there's there's some some really fun elements in it but uh but another another one of the beatles song um till there was you that's actually original that that was was a music man as well (laughs) that's and so it now it brings begs the question did hip-hop borrow elements? And I think it did. I, 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 obviously, hip-hop is, is elements of poetry, mm-hmm. musical, and performance, and and it's just all bundled into one, but then it brings elements of the culture, too. Yes. And different, you know, and also political discussions and, you know, just talk about um, reform and change. All of it's about change and moving things forward, evolving music. Yes. And hip hop has become the type of music now. Like that's it. It was rock, and then rock merged into hip hop almost. And now hip hop is just. I, I'm still trying to formulate how I want to say this because hip hop is is almost everything. A lot of music I hear these days, pop, 
is a hybrid of rap and hip hop and rock and it's all combined. I guess I don't know where I want to go with that theory because it's still pretty early and I still haven't really studied anything <laughs> as far as that goes. But I do think that that's like now part of the defining culture. And then there's going to be something else that comes and it might be spawned out of hip hop. Um, we might already be seeing that too. Oh, sure. It, it, music and and is going to continuously evolve and change. I mean, and and you know the the elements of jazz that are in in hip hop as well. Sure. If you go back to to some of that stuff, and even classical music. I mean, there, there's 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 so much that you can draw draw a line through um, that you go back. But I, you know, I I think that it's it fascinates me how we continuously evolve and change and. And this is actually one of the things that Ron and I have been talking about too lately with regard to um, the, the, the book Superabundance. I don't know if Ron talked to you about that book Not yet. as well. But uh, we're, in fact, we're developing a course on this, the, the, this notion. And it was, it was, both, our, it was our fa- both of our favorite books of 2022, Superabundance by Matt Marion uh, Tupi and um, uh, Gail Pooley. And the, the, the concept is that we live in a world of superabundance. We just don't realize it. And the, their argument is essentially this. They look at what they call time prices. So time is not money, but money is time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and, here, and here's what they mean by that. And I, I, I forget the particulars, but I'm, I'm just going to use this as an example. These numbers are not correct, but you'll, you, you, you'll, you'll get the idea from it. Back in, say, you know, 1900, how many hours did your unskilled laborer have to work in order to buy one pound of sugar? And let's say that that was eight hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. How long today does an unskilled laborer have to work to buy one pound of sugar? And it's like eight minutes. Now, what's nice about time prices is that you t- completely take out and disassociate the money aspect of it, including the effects of inflation, because it's already mm-hmm. adjusted. Because mm-hmm. time so, is not inflating. Time is not inflating, right? T- time is an actual is is the it's is the constant, constant here. Yeah. It's 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 the it's the, the measuring stick, not a magic wand, right? It's it stays the same length. And if you think about that, so how so wouldn't 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 it you be able to then say with regard to sugar that the average unskilled laborer today is significantly better off than the average unskilled laborer was in 1900? And what Marion Tupi and Gail Pooley go through is they go through a bu- dozens, fifty or so of these commodities, mm-hmm. and in every single aspect. This, this has taken place. They completely destroy the Malthusian notion that increasing population is a problem. In fact, there's one chapter where they take you through the logic of how China's one policy, has, one child policy, has probably cost the world um, $100 trillion, I believe, of wealth. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's looking at the cost of having a scarcity mindset almost. That's correct. Oh, wow. I love All right. this. And, and how I'm equating this to our, our conversation about music, because this is one of the things that they talk about, is there, there are you know, 96 or, I don't know, 100 and something elements now 
in, in the on the periodic table. Let's call ninety six of them that sure. are, occur naturally. Well, we we know that we can combine these in different ways to create different things, and the our 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 ability to combine them has been a, a great source of wealth for us. Right, Iron Age, Steel Age, right? Those are only one, two, three element combinations. We haven't begun to explore the, the the possibility of combining these elements in larger quantities of maybe you know a, do- a dozen or more elements together that we could create. And the analogy that they use is it's like the eighty-eight keys on a piano. There's only 88 keys on a piano, but there's infinite amount of ways to play them. Yeah. I love this. I got my kids a piano for Christmas. Um oh. so I'm I'm hearing it a lot. I'm fascinated by it. Mine is by right up here. So Ah, you got one right there. So <laughs> but then bridging it to back to the profession, right? Like that this is what you guys are doing. Like the best the best musicians are taking from the old and making it new again it's not they're not necessarily even creating well, the creating everybody's creating something new when you create something you know right. when, when you walk down the street you're creating something new like there's it, that was the concept that we talked about in rick rubin's new book but with the new modern you know anybody in music they're taking the concepts from the old that philosophy and making it relevant today that's what you and ron are doing with all of these older concepts of business of humanity of people of life and then bridging it to modern day professional knowledge workers mm-hmm. firms not not just accounting because you guys are for all professional firms for all right. professional knowledge workers yeah i mean and and just in in, in business in general too and uh, yeah I, this is this gets to this notion of, of innovation i don't know if ron talked to you about this but the our favorite working definition of innovation is from is it Matt Ridley? I believe it's Matt Ridley, who who uh, says that I, innovation is when ideas have sex. <laughs> That's the title of his latest episode: <laughs> "Ideas Having Sex in the Principal's Office." That was the yeah. title of the latest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, t- tell me what that means to you. It, it, when 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 ideas have sex and procreate, I have a slide that when I do my a session on innovation, it's a it's a it's a, a picture of a, a a stroller that has kind of a skateboard strap to it, and there's you know there, and there's a, a a kid in the stroller, and then there's an older like toddler standing on the skateboard that's attached to the stroller. So when you push the, the stroller, the you know the kid goes, and I'm like. This is brilliant, right? Like yeah. this, if, if, if I had one of these, my relationship with my son, who's my older child, would be much better because, you know, how many times does he you know, yank it on the stroller trying to – and I'm like, I'm trying to push your sister here. Leave me yeah. alone, right? Um, but, but, but the ideas have sex things. Is this, well, if a skateboard and a stroller fell in love. Right, <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and a lot, in a lot of cases, that's all innovation really is, is it's taking two sometimes disparate ideas and putting them together in a way that ha- has, where they haven't been combined before. Or 12 elements or from 12 the periodic elements. table or different keys on the piano. Yep, exactly. Making something new. Yep. I, I love that. And that's, that's sort of bridging again, this whole next generation of new thinkers and Big thinkers too, and that's mm-hmm. again. I see you guys as big thinkers because you're thinking of different ways to do things, and that's that's always resonated with me because 
that used to be my weakness in a lot of ways. So my weakness, when I, if we go back to that, was always like, I always broke the rules. I always got into trouble in ev- everything in life. But then there's there's a lot of ways that that served me well too to think differently and to look at the rules as they don't. You know, I would always hear the rules don't apply. You think the rules don't apply to you and all that. And in some ways. That's true. I should be following rules because there are no rules. There are only consequences is what David mm-hmm. Barrett says. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at things, the way that we did things at the accounting firm, the way that we did things in business, the way that people would intuitively do or people would do something and they say, this is the way you have to do it. And I would always question that. I would always be, but the, there's got to be a better way. This, this, this can't be the way, the only there, way. Yeah, there's, and you know, and this is, this gets to, yeah, you, we don't need to be all rule followers, but there is a certain thing about rules that makes sense. But there's, there's a great, have you heard of what's called Chesterton's Fence? No. Okay, so Chesterton's Fence is a, is a philosophical construct by G.K. Chesterton. And the notion is this he says, if you buy a piece of property and you go out walking through the, survey and you're walking through this wooded area and in the middle of the wooded area there's a fence in the middle of this wooded area do you take the fence down and chesterton's response to this is not until you understand why it was put up (laughs) you you can take it down but you have to first understand why it was put up and the and and i think what what that, you know, my corporate iconoclasm is about is, no, I understand why the fence was put up and the fence doesn't need to be there anymore. Right. <laughs> the fence does not make any sense anymore. So right? understanding why the rules in place before breaking it. Yep. I tend to, t- I, I tend to do the opposite. I didn't even know I would <laughs> blindly just break rules and find it eventually like sometimes it served me well. In most cases I got into trouble, right? Like that's, yeah. Uh, and look, it's a balance. It's a learning. But but look, and and maybe many of those times you were breaking down a fence that deserved to be broken down. You just didn't know why. Right. Right. So but but I think as we get older, as we understand these things, I think it's really important to say, all right, well, now, do we understand why the fence is up? And if we do, who better to take it down than somebody understands why it's up? Because there are a lot of people who walk by the fence and don't even know why it's up and just say, well, the fence is there. We got to leave the fence. And right. that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and and sometimes the fence could be protecting you. There mm-hmm. could be man eating wolves on the other side of that fence, right. and right. you don't want to go on the other side because you're going to get torn apart. Right, right. And 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 maybe it's only seasonal. Maybe it only happens when you know after a rain and the the wolves come to. <laughs> to take relief in a stream. Right. There's there's lots of different <laughs> things that could the reason yeah. for the fence. Right. But have, you have to and. But then it's also questioning why the authority even tells you the reason for the fence, too. Mm -hmm. In some cases, I would even go further to say, if somebody told me that there's wolves there, but I don't see any wolves, I got to see those wolves first before I'm I'm even like obeying this rule. I want to I want to make sure I want to see somebody else. Trust, but verify. Yeah. Trust, but (laughs) verify. There you go. Yeah. Trust, but verify. So we. There was an article in Wall Street Journal recently um, about making accounting cool. And there was some talk about ways to bring people back into the profession. You know, 300,000 accountants have left the profession within the past, I guess it was a few years. I'm sure you've seen this article. You might have even been the one yeah. who shared it 
online. I guess what what are your thoughts on that? Like it, this is it, I don't know if it's because of like it, we can talk about the iconoclast and breaking the rules and mm-hmm. changing the way things are done. It's definitely a contributor to the rules and the way things are done in our profession and the way they're done at these bigger larger firms are contributing to people leaving. So what are your thoughts on all this like to well, and and, and also, where where are they going? They're they're not they're leaving the accounting profession. They're not leaving accounting. Okay. They're <laughs> right? leaving public. They're leaving public accounting. Right. They're not leaving accounting because you know accounting is the language of business. And and by the way, if I could change just one one thing, I would change about your your uh, your intro is you call you call it the accounting industry. I think it's it's best off if it's the accounting profession. Okay. I think Thank that's that, that's 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 the better thing. That was uh, that's cur- courtesy of Mark Koziel, who was was with the ASCPA and, and is now at now at Alenial Global. But anyway, I'm looking to tweak the intro too and get yeah, it a so there you shorter, go. You so this is so, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and here I think is where Ron and I are going to be in a lot more alignment. And maybe I'm just repeating territory that he's already covered. The timesheet is the is the is the cancer of the profession. It is eating the profession from the inside out. When I talk to people and about why they left and they will say, well, I was given this opportunity, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, did you fill out a timesheet? Oh, I hated my timesheets. Like it's, it's, it's almost, it's unconscious even mm-hmm. that that's one of the things that they were escaping. Mm-hmm. The, the having to account for every six minutes of their day was, or worse, not only account for every six minutes of their day, but lying about it on a consistent basis, because I, I don't know if Ron talked to you about this, but I did, a, did a sent out a survey and I'd be curious if we could we just continue this, this refresh this data where I, where I said, true or false, um, you, you have uh, on your timesheet, you have either put down too many hours or too few hours ever, right? Seventy percent last year, or at some seventy percent yeah. of the people said, yeah, and 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 most of them are like, and I do it all the time. Because we we don't put down on the timesheet what actually happened. We put down on the timesheet what we think should have happened or what our boss thinks should have happened or what the customer or they would say client thinks should have happened. That's what you put down. And and I think it's far more people putting short hours in, like working eight, but only putting four on the timesheet because they don't they want their boss to think they're an idiot or they don't want the, the, the client to be pissed at them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they put down too few hours. But yet this is considered to be the sacrosanct and we need to know what our actual costs are. Well, if, if this is just a bunch of lies, what do you mean? It's, it's not actual anything. It's optimal. And I don't know. I did have somebody argue with me one time when we were doing this. The, the, the guy said, Ed, well, it's okay because the lies cancel each other out. I'm like, What? So what was the reason for that? What was the, the he says he said because you know it's it's okay that people lie on their timesheet cuz the they cancel each other out. It's just too few two here this two make a positive. Yeah, yeah I this like, was just nonsense. I'm like this is your theory that they lies cancel each other out. But but my point is getting back to your question is that moral people don't like to lie. And when they're put in the position of feeling like they have to that there, they, there's a creates an imbalance in there. They don't want to stay or stick around with that. 
It's a and crisis then, of conscience sometimes. It's a crisis too. of conscience. And, and then those that really adhere to it and put down exactly what happened and are, are punished. The, the, yeah. The, the, they, they can be punished for being true and real about it. I think uh, Greg Kite has a great story about that when he was a, a, a practicing accountant in the CPA world. You know, he says, like, I didn't lie and I got in trouble. I was told yeah. I was an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so I, you know, I, and I think that this just kind of recycles. I also think that, that that we're recognizing now that presenteeism is a big problem. We don't have to be present to do the work that we do. So why do I have to get to an office again? Like I don't, I don't understand. Well, there's a difference. Presence can be you're physically present or you're mentally present. Like you're right there. Usually, when I think of presence, I think of. I'm bringing my full self to a conversation and Correct. participating. We are present, present yeah. with each other right now, even right. though we are not in the same location. And I, I, but, but, but when I say presenteeism, I mean the, the, the belief among the managerial class that people have to be in the building in order to be supervised with the supervision of these people that they, cause the, cause supervisors have supervision, don't they? <laughs> I, I just thought I just thought of something. I, I love that. Like super and superintendents also have that super <laughs> superness to them. So what about this? What presence are you going to bring to this meeting instead of gifts? Yeah, I'm going to bring what my my mentor Howard Hansen calls my non anxious presence. Ooh, okay, okay. My non anxious presence, my ever increasing. I hope ever increasing, and not well, not well, because. Then, what do you do with that anxiety? Is it excitement? So are you excited present? No. So anxiety anxiety is the internalized fear of the situation. And we can't avoid anxiety. Anxiety is like air, right? We breathe, we breathe it. We we are part of it. We partake in anxiety. We can't get rid of it entirely. But what we can begin to learn to do is is I think self-regulate, not regulate it in others. I can't make anybody else sure. feel less anxious. But I can self-regulate and and bring my own level of anxiety down. And curious that you, you as a creative might appreciate this. But one of the things that my mentor Howard talks about is says anxiety and creativity are always inversely proportional to each other. Right? The more anxious you are, the less creative you can be. Okay. And you can't turn on creativity. You can't say, I need to be creative now. In fact, that probably actually heightens the anxiety and then it actually lowers creativity even more. But what you can do is, is self-regulate and, you know, and sometimes it's just breathing and lower one's level of anxiety and thereby increasing the level of creativity. And of course, the, the, the great, my favorite story to tell about this uh, in, 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 as an example of a non-anxious presence was Chesley Sullenberger. He's the guy who landed the plane in the Hudson River, mm-hmm. right? Sully? Sully, yep. And there was there was an interview that he did on 60 Minutes with with, uh, with Katie Couric, um where she asks him at some point, Captain Sullenberger, did you pray? <laughs> and he says, you know, he's got that, he's very dry, right? He's not, sure. he, no, ma'am. There were 154 people behind me taking care of that. Uh-huh. My job, and I love this phrase, my job was to successfully crash the aircraft. Knew it was going down. He knew the reality of the situation. I had to successfully crash. <laughs> I love that. 
And, you know, you talk to pilots and they're like, well, every landing is actually a successful crash. That's, <laughs> that is, that is what they are. Yeah. <laughs> <And it's, laughs> You're basically um, just prevent. Yeah. 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 yeah, I, yeah. This is a successful crash. Falling um, gracefully. Yeah. Falling gracefully. And, but, you know, I, the lesson that I took from that was that there's a, in business, there's a lot of things in, in many businesses that need to be successfully crashed. But very few people have the non-anxious presence to be able to say, all right, give me this thing. I'm going to successfully crash this. It's going down. Yeah. You can't be afraid of what's going to happen. But I want to I want to successfully crash it. And if that, that means, you know, maybe jettisoning it to another product or selling it, whatever you got to do. But there are so many things inside many businesses that need to be successfully crashed. And, you know, I think it's a good thing to think about is like, what are the things in your business or in your life even that you need to successfully crash? Give me some examples. Huh. Could be it could be something like a, a, an addiction. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. These all of these things would be related in some way could could be just a, 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 something that you're working on that, you know, hey, that's not working out anymore. I, I really I, I, there's other things I should be doing than worrying about that. You know, may, maybe it's over exercising for your age. I know this is something that happened to me like, well, you know what, Ed? maybe just tone it down. Don't go. Maybe walking is fine now. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Um that's, so I, I, that's basically what happened to me. I, I was working out a lot. I mean, I'm not that that old, but I walk a lot. And this is, I was talking to Ron about his fitness goals for the year when mm -hmm. we were talking on December 30th. I don't know if he's been walking at all, but that's what he, that's one thing he said he wanted to start mm -hmm. doing more of is moving, moving, yeah. moving more. Um, that's all I do now. When I listen to anything, I just go out the door and I just get lost. I just walk. Yeah. That's, I do a lot, of, a lot of podcast listening. Yeah, yeah, successfully lot. get lost. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing that I've crash. done is this: I'm doing that right now at the stand-up desk in the afternoon. That's, okay, that's been very helpful for me. I can't do it because it hurts my. Uh, I think I do. I stand up too long, and mm. then it'll hurt my back and hurt You're my back. feet because of the way I'm standing or I'm like kind of leaning. Mm. So now I just try to sit less and be in front of the computer less altogether. Yeah. It's only the only time I'm sitting now these days is in front of. Uh, interviews when I'm doing this and mm. I, it's easier for me to be present if I'm sitting down than if I'm trying to, you know, sure. walk around on the side. But I, I, I think I need to try that too. That's a, that's a good, it's a, it's a good thing. Stand, everybody's got a stand up desk now. Cause you can't, like they say, sitting is the new cigarettes. Cigarettes or, is the new smoking. I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. Sitting is the new smoking. Taking years off of our lives. So, so back to the profession. Um, yep not the industry and well no that's that's actually important to clarify then why not an industry and why a profession um philosophically because, yeah philosophically because it, because a profession is made up of professionals <laughs> and okay. prof professionals who whose who, whose job is not to just complete a task but to make a transformation to as transform would say. yeah to guide the transformation yeah the guy, the transformation. You guys are the guided transformation. The principal and the superintendent are guiding the transformation <laughs> guided of the professions <laughs> of the profession, right? Yeah. The guided transformers. That's like Chat GPT. The the <laughs> G. Um, it's not a guided transformer, but it's a generated. Pre yeah, gener generative, gener predictive text. Is that right? To have that? Yeah. Say GPT. So, so you guys would be the 
guided professional transformers. There we go. Profession transformers. The guided profession transformers. Ooh, I love it. That's yeah. That's a. Oof, sometimes sometimes the wordplay just gets gets away from me. I don't even know where it comes from. So the super the super chat GPTs or the super GPTs. Um it, it'll get there. It'll get there. I don't wanna I don't wanna dig it too deep. So yeah, so there's the uh, the current and the cancer that we're all so that's important that you describe it like a cancer because we all are living with cancer. Uh, that's a fact, right? We all have mm-hmm. cancer in our body. It's just we we are it's it's not present or it's not I don't know how to explain that but I know that I've I've read that or I've heard it where cancer's there and it just gets exposed in certain areas if you wear down your immunity and other mm-hmm. like, again I'm not a scientist so yeah. I can't but that's that's a concept right so so then let's go back to the cancer of the profession is the billable hour right the timesheet. The, the, the billable sheets. hours, yeah, the, because it's a product of that. Yeah, the yeah. lot. A lot of people, a lot of people will, are are moving to e- value based pricing or fixed pricing or even subscription pricing. But I, what I know, they're keeping the damn timesheet. And I, oh, like I, my I, firm, we still have time. Like, they're still keeping time in carbon, and I, they're still I, I, tracking it. I just don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I'm at the point now where I don't even care if we do it anymore. But it's my operations manager that says we need it. We need the data. And I, I don't even have it in me to say that we need to stop because it's there's so that the timesheet itself mm-hmm. is the cancer. Yep. And people will always so it's tracking of it and paying attention to that of over leading indicators over things that we can do to improve. Mm-hmm. But when I look at how many different people I've hired to work for or different companies I've worked with, I can only think of one in recent memory that did not give me an hourly rate. And these are all different industries, mm-hmm. all different areas. Not nothing, none of, well, attorney was one mm-hmm. hourly rate for, for yep. damn sure. Editors, mm-hmm. any kind of editor that I've hired for any of my creative acts, that's all hourly. And, I'm I'm trying to get to how do we work together and I pay for the outcomes. How do I pay for the work that's being done? And the only way they know how to do it is to work backwards from how much time it's going to take them. And this is their own businesses. Like nobody's mm-hmm. telling them how to do this. So in in all respects, and, and I've been trying to work with my editor who's going to be editing this, and it's still an hourly rate because it was more comfortable for both of us to do that than to just say, okay, there's it's, it's this dollar amount because things are changing, right? In the, in the period of change and doing different things, it's almost like a, a crutch that all of us fall back on is tracking the time that it's taking. Um, but he, so, he, here's the yeah. learning in this, is that is that your provider's time is irrelevant to you. Right. Right. That you, you, if if anything, your provider should be should be charging for the time that he or she is saving you, right? And how much time <laughs> would it take me to do this, right? Well, well, what's the value of that is to you, right? Right. 
you know, it, and that and that's the whole thing is that we have we have, and I'm sure Ron Ron went over this. We have this exactly backward. It's exactly backward. We like we have to figure out what the total number of hours is so that we can set the price, so that we can then tell the customer what the value is. No, it's it's completely backwards. We have to first understand what the value to the customer is. Then we have to just determine our price. And then as we are, uh, since we're the professionals, we say, okay, this is the price that I can get for this. Is it worth it for me? Is it the future expenditure of costs for me to do it for that price? Yeah. And it's exactly backwards. They have the syllogism completely inverted. And, and, and that's, but, but yet we know this. I mean, it's, it's like so obvious when you see it in other places. Did, did Ron tell you the, uh, the, and I, I, I'm going to, I love stealing a story if you didn't, the, the Farniente story? I don't think so. Okay. So this is, this is, a, it's his story. So I'm going to shamelessly steal it because okay. I tell it better than he does anyway. So <laughs> that's, that's, that, go for it. Yeah. Let's do it. So, uh, Farniente is a winery out in, by, by Ron in, uh, in, um, Petaluma. I think they're a little bit north of that, so I think they're, they're actually in Napa Valley. But anyway, Farniente is Italian for do nothing, which is a great name for a winery. I love that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. You know, sort of like Chez Louis is better than Louis' house, you know, for a restaurant <laughs> name. <laughs> right. Um, and Hagendas, by the way, doesn't mean anything in any language. It just sort of sound, it sounded like good ice cream. It sounded German. It's, yeah, yeah, right? it's, yeah. yeah, it sounded German. It sounded like good ice cream. <laughs> Yeah, they put the little dots on there too. Yeah, yeah they put no, the umlauts. Got no the umlauts going. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so Farniente, and and when you go on the tour of Farniente, they have this this one particular. Uh, estate, they call it their estate bottled Cabernet, and and um, when the, when you go do the tour, they they talk about you know they have lots of stuff that's thirty forty dollars a bottle, but their estate bottled Cabernet, blah blah blah, and they they this is how they pitch it. They said, well, th- this this wine. That is is extraordinarily delicate, and the grapes bruise easily. Mm. You're stepping on the grapes, though. So, yeah. Okay. okay, but they bruise easily, and okay. So this is why this this bottle of wine is 150 dollars a bottle, whereas our other stuff is like 30. Because these grapes bruise easily, we cannot use the automated picker machines that we do. We have to actually have hire additional people to come in and pick them. We can't use the automated bottling process where we ship the stuff out and use a we hand bottle. That's why it's estate bottled. It's bottled at the estate itself, and we have to use a special cork that goes into the top. You know, very nicely doesn't doesn't bruise the wine, and a foil that goes over it. And if we ship this stuff to you, we send it in two two boxes of six rather than one box of twelve because it bruises easily and all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And you're going through that and you're going. That's why this wine is more expensive because because your costs are higher. No, is it it's, better? That, well, Ron thinks it's better. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. pretty good. <laughs> he, he, right, I mean, right. he really likes it. I think it's good. But it, is it was it 150 for me? No, but and that's the whole point. To 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 a wine guy like Ron, it's worth paying them 150 200 dollars a bottle for this stuff because Farniente can get. $150 a bottle, they can justify the costs of bringing in additional labor, laborers and hand bottling it at, at, the, at the estate. So their story is, is this cost plus story, but it's nonsense 
Because, and this this goes back to you know we're, now we're heart of economics, and economics is based on 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 moral philosophy. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher, not a, not an economist, and and he said, look. What, why it with the diamond water water paragraphs? Why, why is a lump of coal found behind a diamond not worth more than a diamond? Took more longer time to get there. Was behind it. Yeah. And the answer is is because we value the diamond more. What we value, it's this is all the same wine in a different bottle. Yeah. Right. Like we're just <laughs> so I, I love the wine story because there's so many different ways to bottle that and package that and present it to the buyer as this is better mm-hmm. because this is better because we're doing it by hand because we're doing all that it's not our it's not forget so the consumer doesn't care how much your costs are this is how we do this mm-hmm. and this is why and then all of a sudden it might taste better because you're hearing it in a different light mm-hmm. almost it's just their story and it's how we brand our stories, and it's how we tell our stories as professionals. Mm-hmm. And the stories that we tell ourselves could be lies or could be that there really aren't any wolves on the other side of that fence. But we're afraid to break that fence down. We're afraid yep. to go on the other side because the chance that there might be. Well, and, and back to the Chesterton's fence, you know, I think I think what Ron has done and what I've helped him continue to do over is dis- dis- destroy the reason. We, we understand the reason for the fence now and and we can take it down. We can, we know we can take it down. But there's those people who just like, well, but it's always been there. It's always been there. Yeah, but there are no wolves. <laughs> so I got I just released an episode of um, a guy that's at a firm with about 100, 100 people, a 100-person firm. They are trying to do things differently, but there's no way they're getting rid of time as far as like, you know, and the, and the, the guest, you know, he's, he's actually a proponent of getting rid of time, mm-hmm. but they don't think they, that it's even possible the way that they do things. And the reasons that he was giving is because of different, people in different locations and you and they're not good managers of people was the real reason is what he said they're not good at managing people and the analogy i gave was and i don't know if it has anything to do with people but it was kind of funny where not using time is like freeballing it and some people need the under underpants to feel secure they need that to feel secure to feel like it's not just willy-nilly going all over the place and they're scared of the possibility of what could happen if they just go free. Um, it's it the illusion of fo- control. It's the illusion. illusion of control. It's the illusion of control. And, and what's going to happen on the other side of that, it's going to force, it's this forcing mechanism to force a different way of managing people. And it obviously it could be a better way, mm-hmm. but everybody's afraid of losing what they have too, losing the way things are. I'm gonna gonna bring in another one of our favorite people, and that is uh, Callie Ressler and Jody Thompson in their book "Why Work Sucks and How to Fix It." They they this was a book I don't know twenty years ago maybe at this point, and um, Jody has this great phrase: "Manage the work, not the people." Ooh, I like that. Manage the work. What's got to get done? The work has to get done. What do we manage? We manage the work. Yeah, 
I, that's why I like the whole map to rap because we're not managing a practice. We're not managing anything. Nope. We're running it. And the people, people can't be managed. I, I just don't even like that word. Like you said, no. industry, I don't even like manage anymore. No. I don't like staff anymore either. No. Sounds like an infection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's teams. It's running. It's running together. It's, you know, everybody's working together. We're not being managed and we're not really managing anything because you still, you can't even manage. How do you manage the work? Like it's, you do the work. You do the work. Yeah. You do the work. I mean, the work has, and when we say manage the work, we mean, you know, let, let's, let, it's, is it moving through the process? That's the processes. The yeah. The process, yeah. you know. Is it working through the systems? Is it, yeah. Is it working through that, that process? And, and, and you know, this is another Peter Drucker thing, but the, the, do the, the, do the systems serve the people or do the people serve the systems? And I think that the timesheet is a great example of the people tra- serving the system. Because it does, because the, that system doesn't serve the people. In fact, it's used as a as a as a uh, a, a, a stick to beat people with. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's not even managing. That's punishing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's punishment. It's penal. It's not. It's not. It's not anything helpful. So, so we all, not not we all, but like that's that's the underlying issue is everybody's got it backwards and we're all upside down. We're As Ron, Ron would put it, it's the down. wrong theory. You have the wrong theory of value. And if, 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 you're, if you're basing your thing on the wrong theory, once, once I remove the theory, which is called the labor theory of value, that the value of, of the output is equal to the sum total of the components of the labor to put it in this baseball that I'm holding right here, the, the value of this is equal to the sum total of the cowhide and the stitching and the, the string that was put wound around and the, the time it took to string it up together, that's, that, that's where, where the value of this baseball is. No, right? That we know this not we know this not to be true, um, but we, we but we behave somehow in the accounting profession and other professions as if it's not, and we ignore it. It's the wrong theory of value. Value does not come from the sum total of the of the inputs. It comes from the per, from the perception of the customer. And if 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 you've got the wrong theory, you can't you you can't. There's no good way to implement the wrong theory, or a bad theory. This is why communism doesn't work. It's a bad theory. <laughs> It can't be, so, it's not, it's not going to be different next time. Right. And so getting people to rethink, there's two books that I've read recently that kind of introduced this idea of people rethinking. One is Rethink by Adam Grant. And the other one is What If We're Wrong by Chuck Klosterman. Uh-huh. And I love that one. It's thinking about the present as if it were the past or thinking about the future as if it was the present. I, I'm not quite sure which one it is. I think it's thinking of the present as if it were the past. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to think of how we do things now when that's been changed? Because when you look at throughout history, a lot of ideas have been upended and ch- dr- drastically changed for one reason or another. We all find out that we were all wrong mm-hmm. on something. Yep. And, and I think that's obviously with this and in, in this case, that's happening in real time we're seeing people so do you i guess do you want to like comment on just that that whole idea of rethinking and thinking about ways I, like i like that yeah. i like that aspect of like let, let, let's let's think about the present as if it were the past and it's, it's hard though because it, you know and 
Most of us want to think that if we lived in the United States in the 1860s, we we would be abolitionists. Yeah, that's that's untrue. The reality is, is that's not true. I I would hope it would I would be, but the the the, the probability is really low. We know the reality was <laughs> there was a very 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 few people at, in those times right. that even spoke up against it. That's right. In, including some of the greatest people in our history, like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, right? Right. And th- these, yes, was it is it character flaws on them? Yes, we 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 can we can in a sense judge them for that because they knew it was wrong and didn't say anything or couldn't or felt like they couldn't whatever for whatever reason. But the the point point being is that if we if we do think about the present as if it were the past, what what are, what what are the judgments that we would make ab- about ourselves then today? Like what what are the, what are the things we say? Well, that was a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah. What are the things that we're currently upholding and yeah. the systems that we're currently un, uh, blindly though? A mm-hmm. lot of us have blind spots to that, and that's what the book introduces. Is there's so many so many different aspects of our lives that we don't even question. We don't think right. that we're wrong. There's no possible way that we're wrong about this. We're all certain. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all certain that fo- one thing is football. Like it, that's. It introduces that idea where it's it's probably going to take one or two people dying on the field for us to really rethink that system mm-hmm. and that. And I'm not somebody that's against football because I'd, I'd like sports, but I see the point and I see how that's that could be seen as barbaric and then it's going to turn into what certain forms of wrestling are where they're still there, like MMA and those types of fighting, but it's and boxing and, and other things like mm-hmm. that. But it's just not as wide spread yeah i mean football's tough I, i'm glad my kid played baseball not football I'm just telling you that right now well exactly that's that's the way we're thinking about that like we don't want our kids getting hurt yet we're cheering everybody else on while they're doing it mm-hmm. yeah it's but. it's rough but but and your question is a good one and i, I have to uh, i will continue to ponder it and give that more thought we, we are going to look back on these times maybe even even on the stuff that ron and i are talking about subscription and go well that was really it was maybe it was a transition to something else, but it wasn't wasn't all that great. <laughs> well, I I'm all for subscriptions. I don't, yeah, that, that's that's one of those things. As I look at it, like that's already being done, and we're seeing that as an an example in so many other industries and ways of you know subscriptions have always been around. It's just applying it differently, right. taking something just like you're the philosophers, the ancient wisdom of things and applying it differently. But mm-hmm. what if we're wrong, right? Like, right, but what, what if, if we're, we're wrong, wrong about how we're doing it now? And that's, that's sort of what you guys are always doing when you question, you know, when, when you first heard Ron's phone call about the, or obviously when you read the book too, mm-hmm. like that, obviously you were looking at it like there's something there. Like this is, this is transformational. This is going to yep. change our profession. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's also touch on the book that you're reading now and just talk a little bit about that because that's mm-hmm. that interests me. Yeah, Peter Blocks and Peter Kostenbaum, although Kostenbaum has passed away a while ago, their book is called Confronting Our Freedom. And we're really delivering on some of the work that he's done previously and the answer to how is yes. In, in short, he he basically says that Freedom and accountability are the same thing. 
we can't make people accountable. Accountability has to be chosen. I choose accountability. I choose to be accountable to my spouse. I choose to be accountable to the, my, the company that I work for. I choose it. If it's imposed, it's no longer accountability. It's compliance. So I have to be an active participant in the application. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing for you again. Because right, this, cool. this kind of comes full circle from another dope, broad, yeah. Broadway musical. So I had the, the great privilege of, right after college, being in a regional production of a show called Pippin. Okay. Um, which is a kind of an everyman story, if you haven't seen it, by Stephen Schwartz. Pippin guy who, at our high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same guy who wrote uh, Wicked. And at the end, I, w- I was Pippin, and Pippin is stripped. Strip bare. He, you know, is basically in a sackcloth at the end. They turn the lights off. They shut the music down. There's nothing. <laughs> and Pippin has this lyric that I sang, you know, hundreds of times. If you include rehearsal and performances and all of this stuff, and I didn't understand it until decades later when I'm. Isn't that amazing? How some yeah. some songs and some like yep. it, that's how I feel about Red Hot Chili Peppers "Under the Bridge," <laughs> like. <laughs> But yeah, continue, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it, it's like now I get it. I wish I got it then, but I didn't. Anyway, here's the, here's here's the lyric at the end. Again, Pippin alone, bare stage, no lights on, everything off, and uh, he sings, "I'm not a river or a giant bird that soars to the sea, and if I'm never tied to anything, I'll never be free." If I'm never tied to anything, I'll never be free. Wow. I love that. So why, what hit you? And at what point when you did figure out the meaning of that, how impactful was that? And I remember thinking about it weeping. Yeah. It's a decision. I have free will. I have, I have, I have the ability to feel about the situation the way I do. This is Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, the last of the human freedoms, for us to to feel about the situation the way we feel about the situation. That cannot be taken away from us. It's a choice. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading the Untethered Soul. Uh, I've been reading that for a little while now, and the portion I read recently was how we all have energy inside of us and sometimes we choose to close it off and we close our hearts, we close ourselves, we close our minds. If we just choose to open our minds, we're free and it's the abundance. It's that mindset of the abundance and everything happening all the time and being present for all of that. Like it's, this is a, a a real big idea that I'm trying to condense and, and relate it to hit to this, but it's mm-hmm. it's the same thing with freedom and accountability. If you choose to own your situation and you choose to show up and be accountable, that's a choice. It's not you know, same same with freedom. I mean, in, in some ways, you choose to be free, or you choose to be a slave. A slave. Back to the the slave talk and the rethinking, right? Mm-hmm. Like re and looking at it, like some people are choosing servitude and that's by choice. They by almost choice. prefer that. This is the and crazy it, part. 
it makes that it's, it makes sense to them, and they prefer to be under control of somebody else because they don't know what they would do with their own freedoms, and they've experienced that in, and it's almost like comfortable for them, and it's it's comforting to let somebody else to give up control and let somebody else choose. Because then it's not my fault if something do. goes wrong. Yeah. And you can complain about everything else going on and everybody else because it's never your fault. That's actually a really good point. If you want to have that scape, scapegoat mindset or if you want to be able to point the finger, then you have to give up control of yourself, of your mind, of your activities because then you're a- actually able to point at somebody else. And somebody else has to take accountability for that because they're, yep. they're forcing your actions. Um, the other real interesting bit about that is just compliance in general talking about how we're in an industry that is compliance (laughs) like that's what Uh, we do and rethinking that in and of itself is another great point right it's like you know this this gets to and 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 i do have to wrap things up now but the, the, the 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 gets to the point is you know what's better regulation or reputation and I think it's I think it's regulation of reputation by far. I mean, people, we it's it's bad business to kill your customers. <laughs> it's bad it. business. It's bad business to lie. It's bad business to commit fraud. You can temporarily, maybe you can eke it out temporarily, but unless you're a malignant narcissist, it's not going to work for you in the long run. This just got good. I can't wait for part two. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait for part two. <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll have to you. do this with a couple of glasses of wine, maybe even better. For sure. We'll get that wine that you said. The, <laughs> That's I'll, right. I'll the Farniente. Both. I'll compare them. Yeah, the Farniente. <laughs> so um, we'll continue. Should you accept the position of superintendent, we could, uh, we'll continue these guided conversations. I love this, man. I appreciate you coming on. My um, honor and pleasure. Truly, truly is. Yeah, for sure. And it's that's like... Uh, Oh, man, I got a lot to think about after this one. This was one of the bigger conversations I've had all year so far. So this is dope. Cool. I'm going to play our outro and all right. bid, you, bid you adieu, sir. I appreciate you. Yeah, I don't miss.